As has already been said this morning, we're very thankful that you made the decision to come and worship God with us this morning, and it's my prayer that what I have to say this morning will contribute to the already wonderful song service that we've had this morning. If you're a young lady this morning looking for relationship advice and have a young man that won't commit to popping the question, we're not here to help you this morning. I'm sorry about that, but maybe some of the things we'll talk about will, will have a little bit of impact on that and maybe might be able to use that, but... We're going to talk about this morning about commitment issues that we may have when it comes to committing to serving God in our own lives individually. A few years ago, I was in a study with Brother Mike McCorkle, and he used the analogy that I'm about to show you to talk about commitment, and that is the idea of breakfast, bacon and eggs. What in the world does breakfast have to do with commitment other than I'd like to commit to eating this breakfast, you know, on a regular basis? Well, think about what's involved with the breakfast of bacon and eggs. You have a chicken and you got a pig. What is it about commitment that relates to all that? Well, the chicken was involved with this breakfast, but the pig was committed, right? So the chicken contributed to breakfast. It contributed a couple of eggs. But Wilbur ended up on my plate. He went to the slaughterhouse. It wasn't like the happy ending we find in the story. He goes to the slaughterhouse and he ends up on the plate. He committed to breakfast, and I realized neither the chicken nor the, nor the pig had any say in the matter. They didn't ever have a choice. But I think the, the analogy holds up for you and I when we consider our commitment to anything in our lives. Are we like the chicken and we're just sort of involved with whatever we're involved in, or are we committed to that cause? Some of the things that we are committed to in our lives or may commit to, these are a few things that I thought of. Marriage, that's a huge commitment. You know, we don't want to just tell the person that we're getting married to, well, I'd like to be involved with you a little bit and contribute a little bit of my time. You know, the Bible tells us that a man and, and a woman become one flesh. They come together. It's a commitment. It's something to be taken seriously. Raising children. You know, we don't want to just say, well, we've got these kids at our house. that They're around us, and we put out food for them every now and then, and we're a little bit involved. No, we want to be committed to our children. No employer at any career will... Be satisfied if you just show up whenever you want to and say, I just want to be involved every now and then. They want you to be committed to your schedule of 8 to 5 or, or whatever that schedule is. If you're like me, after the holidays and most of the rest of the year, you're feeling a little bit fluffy. And you think, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a Bowflex. I'm going to commit. I'm going to get it done. And obviously with me, that never happens because I don't commit to, to getting in shape, buying a house, so on and so forth. These are all things... Being involved in these things isn't enough. We have to commit to these kinds of things. But more importantly this morning, what about your walk with Jesus Christ? Have you taken up your cross? Have you followed after him? Are you committed to serving God? Or do you just say, well, I want to be involved in my church. I want to be involved in this congregation, and I want to contribute, but maybe I'm not ready to commit. Maybe I've got commitment issues. What are some of the reasons we don't fully commit and what you know, holds us back? What does it mean if we do make the decision to commit? What are the ramifications of that? And I think what I'd like to do this morning is to talk about commitment in terms that we can all understand, and that is financially, and relate that to how it uh, involves us in our service to God as well. In thinking of commitment in terms of finances, whether it's buying a house or a car, investing in stocks or a mutual fund, or, or simply just opening a bank account, 
We understand what it means when we're making a financial commitment. I remember the 16, 17 years ago when Becca and I bought our first house. In the process of that, it was, it was almost torture in, in some areas. And so thinking about when we commit ourselves financially to something, we understand what that means. We think about it in terms of our service to God. Maybe we'll be able to understand better what it really means when we're saying, I'm committed to serving God. So financially, what do we do when we make a financial commitment? I think the first thing we do, we sit down and count the cost. We decide whether or not whatever decision I'm about to make financially, is it worth the price that I'm going to pay? I mentioned it about our first house a while ago. I remember we, you know, we got to a point where we think, okay, we're making this much money, and we have you know, the, these many payments that we have to make, and I think we can, you know, if we can get a down payment together, maybe we can make this work. And we sit down and we talk about it. We call a realtor up and we say, we're looking for a house in Canyon. We want it to be, you know, this kind of house and this is our price range. And we find a house, we take that to the bank and the loan officer. And, you know, what can you do for us? Can we make this work? And we go through all this and there's so many other details and minutiae involved in all that that, you know, you don't even think about really unless you're doing it at the time. And I remember being excited and a little bit nervous. And then I remember the day that we walked out of Chicago Title, or whatever title company it was. I don't remember now at the time. Stewart Title, I think. Anyways, I remember after signing 500 different sheets of paper that I didn't know what half of them meant. And I walked out of there, and I just had this pit in my stomach. I'm like, what did I just do? What did I just sign? What does all this mean? They gave me these little chocolate houses to make us feel better, I guess. And I couldn't even eat the chocolate. I'm like, oh, my stomach doesn't feel too good. I was counting the cost. Is this going to be worth it? And so many times when it comes to committing to God, I don't think we count the cost. What's it going to cost us to serve God? Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children... Brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? Whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. We don't count the cost sometimes. You know, when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, Jesus doesn't teach us to hate people. That's the opposite of what Jesus teaches us, right? We're supposed to love one another as he's loved us. But what he's saying here is you've got to be willing to give up anything that stands in the way of your service to me. Commitment means all else becomes secondary. Yes, your own life also. You don't have to hate your family, love your family, but if your family gets in the way of committing to Christ, then you need to be willing to get that out of your life. And that involves anything else in our lives, our own life, whatever we're into, whatever we like or enjoy, whether it's sinful behavior or just non-sinful behavior, just that takes us away from Jesus. If it gets in the way of our service to him, to committing to him, he says you need to be willing to hate that. Get it away. Sit down. And count the cost. Now, I think too many times we look at this in a negative context. And we think, oh, it just costs so much to serve God. We think the cost of what we have to give up, whether it's sin, whether it's just whatever the stuff that makes us happy, we think, oh, 
the cost that I'm paying to serve Jesus, like I'm paying some huge price. And we look at it in negative context and we think the things that we have to give up in order to be a Christian. And we don't think about all the things that we gain. What is it that he's talking about here? The things that make us happy. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 6, he says, You have so much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. So the nation of Judah, after spending all those years in captivity in Babylon, finally came back to Jerusalem. They finally began to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls. Ezra and Nehemiah and all that. And they come and they start rebuilding their lives. In the first chapter of the book of Haggai, God says, hey, what about my temple? What about the house of God? And they say, oh, it's not time yet. The time is not yet right for that. God said, is it time to build your own houses? Is it time for you to be about your own business, trying to get yourselves filled with food and drink and clothing? You're doing all these things, but you're not satisfied. While my house lies in ruins. And the fact is, is, we place such a high cost on all this, such a high price on the things that we can get out of this life. Meanwhile, God's house lies in ruins. And we're not satisfied. It's never enough. It doesn't matter how much money we make. It doesn't matter how much stuff we have. It doesn't matter how much sin we partake in. It's never enough. Because God creates in us a desire to serve him, to need him. And that's a desire that can only be filled by him. When we turn to the things of this world, when we turn to our own devices, it never works out. It's never enough. Isaiah chapter 47, verse 8. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the great abundance of your enchantments, for you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you, and you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. This is what sin does to us. Those things in this life, let's, let's put it on the table. Sin is pleasurable. Sin can bring temporary pleasure. Why else would we want to do it? Why else would we be tempted? And that's what he's saying here. Those who are given to pleasures, you're caught up in your sin. You say, there's no one else besides me. I dwell securely. No one knows what I'm up to. I'm caught up in my own sin. I've bewitched myself. He talks about sorceries or enchantments. I've, I've caused myself, not literal magic, but I've, I've talked myself into deceiving myself into thinking that I'm safe, that I'm okay, that I like the, the sin that I partake in, and that I'm good with that. I've trusted in my wickedness. God says, you're a fool. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. Those things will never satisfy us. Specifically here, he's talking about sinful behavior, but anything in this life that we look at and may not say, well, that's sin, but if it's something that we're putting ahead of God, that we're not willing to pay the cost in order to commit to our service to God, it's not worth it. And instead of looking at counting the cost in a negative aspect and thinking, what all am I giving up in order to serve God? It's all like, it's not even worth it. I'm giving up these things, but these are things that can't satisfy me. God can satisfy me. Why should I fear 
in the days of evil, when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. All these people that trust in the multitude of their riches, we boast in that. Can that save your soul? Jesus asked the question, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What is a profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Can we put a prize tag on that? There's not a person in this room who looks at something in the world and says, you know what, if I could have all the money in the world, if I could have all the things that I wanted, have all the pleasure that I wanted, I'd, I'd take it in exchange for my salvation. I'd willingly go to hell in order to have a life filled with all the stuff this world has to offer. No one would make that decision consciously. But we do it by action when we refuse to commit. If we refuse to commit, what we are in essence is saying is it's not worth the cost. I'd rather, I think the devil's got a bigger, better deal than what God can give me. That's what we mean. That's what we say. We don't say it outright, but that's what we imply by our actions. So if we've got commitment issues this morning in our service to God, maybe it's because we don't think it's worth the cost. But I think we've shown already that the cost is well worth paying. And we'll come back to that a little bit later as well. If you're having commitment issues this morning, maybe it's a matter of trust. Trust is a funny thing. You know, when we give our money to somebody, we're at least by implication saying, I trust you. Whether it's, you know, buying a house, whether it's uh, getting a car loan at Texas Plains Federal Credit Union. If Mike can plug, so can I. Whether it's, you know, going to the grocery store and giving them, I trust that the groceries I'm getting, you know, I'm trusting you. What is it about trust? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him until that day. Trust is a really big thing. We like to be able to trust people, don't we? You know, you could take out this entire part of this verse, I know whom I believed all the way till the end, and Paul could just say, I trust God. Because that's what he's saying here. I know whom I believed. I'm persuaded that he is able. This is the key part. He is able. He, I trust God, Paul said. I'm able to suffer these things. Why? Because I trust God. I believe God. He's able to keep what I've committed. So the actual word committed is used here. What did Paul commit? He committed his life. He committed his soul. He committed his salvation to God. And he says, I've done that because I trust God. I believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Until that day, he's going to keep me, my soul, my salvation, until that day, and he's going to give it back to me eternally. He's going to give my life back to me at that day. Paul implicitly, explicitly trusted God. And so he was able to say, I've given it all to him. What is it about trust? What's the one thing that can break trust in our lives? It's deception, right? It's a little three-little word called lie. Somebody lies to us, the trust is gone. Really, you think about that's the only thing, deception. If we can't trust somebody to tell us the truth or be honest with us, we don't trust them. 
We trust people. I trust my wife. She trusts me. I trust my brethren. But you know what? I've had brethren lie to me before. That hurts. I don't trust them anymore. They tell me it's raining outside. I'm going to look out the window and make sure. Telling the truth is a big thing. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Some key things here. Immutability. That's an unchanging nature. If it's immutable, it doesn't change. What is one of the things that doesn't change? It's impossible for God to lie. When you really start to sit down and think about the statement, it's impossible for God to lie, and you've been told your whole life that nothing is impossible with God, it kind of get, creates a little bit of a loop in your head a little bit when you start thinking about, well, if God can do anything, but he can't lie, then he can't do everything. It's just God's nature. It's nothing to get confused about. God simply doesn't lie. It's not in his nature. So if we follow through on this aspect of trust, and the thing that can really break trust is a lie, we can know we can trust God with anything. If God says, I can do it or I will do it, then he'll do it. Because God does not tell a lie. Never has, never will. So that means when we go to the word of God, assuming we trust this, is the inspired word of God, and we're not going to get into apologetics this morning, so we'll just make that assumption that we all believe this is the inspired word of God, and it's all true, then we can trust God. Whatever he says in here, we can believe it. We can know it as fact. So what does that mean for us if we're having commitment issues? Maybe it means we don't trust God. Jesus came to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth. Here's what I want to focus on. Jesus said, All authority has been given me on heaven and earth. Now, we know the Great Commission. But think about what he's saying here. If God can't tell a lie... And Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. We can take that to the bank. We can know that Jesus has all power and all authority in heaven and earth. God doesn't lie. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit, which is God, wrote it, inspired the men to write it down. We can believe it. It's true. Jesus says, you can trust me. I've got it all. I've taken care of it. Therefore, Go. Go, do it, commit, serve me, make disciples, teach them, follow me. I'm with you always. You can trust me. But for some reason, we're still unwilling to commit. Maybe it's because we really don't trust God. Now, nobody in this room would ever stand and say, I just don't trust God. I don't believe that God can help me with my problems. I don't believe that God can take care of my salvation. We don't say that, but our actions say that because we don't commit why can't we just simply follow him and obey him but he because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them there's that 
phrase, he is also able. He's able. If God never tells a lie and he says, I've got all power, and he says, I can save you to the uttermost, we can take it to the bank. We know it's true, and we can trust him. And we can serve him, and it frees us. That's what people think, oh, commitment, it's so binding and it's so restrictive. No, it's not binding, it's freeing. Commitment frees us to simply do what God tells us to do and trust that we're going to have our salvation because of that. Committing to God doesn't mean we're giving up our freedom. We're simply meaning we trust God to take care of it all and we don't have to worry about it. That's what it means to commit to God. You know, there's a phrase that, uh, that we hear a lot. And I didn't really think about it a lot until I sat down to do this sermon. And it, it really started to bother me. And I don't think it is even a, a real thing. And that is a level of commitment. What's our level of commitment? You want to be part of this committee or group, maybe in the community or at work or whatever. What's your level of commitment to that? You want to be a Christian. What's your level of commitment to be a Christian? I don't think there's such a thing as levels of commitment, degrees of commitment. I think you're either committed or you're not. Going back to the chicken and the pig, what level of commitment did the chicken have? It didn't really have any commitment. It contributed. It was involved with breakfast, but it didn't commit to anything, not in on any level, because it just gave the eggs, and then it goes on about its business. There's no such thing as levels of commitment. You're either committed or you're not. And that brings us to the last point, which is meaning you're all in. How many times have you seen a movie or a television show when people are around the poker table playing cards? And you see them all, and they've got their hands, and they're looking, and they're looking up to see who's got the good poker face and who doesn't. And he looks down and says, I've got a full house, but I don't know if he's got a royal flush. And finally, he puts the cards down, shoves all the chips to the middle of the table. I'm all in. I call. He's committed everything. He's given up everything he had on the table to the one hand. Whatever happens, happens. That's what it means to be all in in our service to God. Jesus talked about it in the first verse we read. If any man doesn't hate his father or mother, son or daughter, wife, children, whatever, he's not worthy of me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet I indeed count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, but let's break it down a little bit. First of all, what did Paul say? The things that were gained to me, I've counted loss. I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Suffered the loss of all things. Let's start there. All in. Paul didn't say, you know... I count some things as loss in my life. I've suffered some things or suffered the loss of some things in my life. You know, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a very influential member of the Jewish community. He had a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of friends in high places. He gave all that up. 
He didn't say, I've suffered the loss of some things. He didn't say, I've suffered the loss of most things. He said, I've suffered the loss of all things. I've left it all behind. I count it all as rubbish. It's just trash, garbage. That's what rubbish is. Just the British term for trash. All things. Why? That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, not counting on my own self, my own skill, with whatever bigger, better deal is out there, but not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is through Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? See the connection here? You know, if God had our quote-unquote level of commitment, sometimes we'd be in pretty rough shape. If God said, well, I'd like to be involved in these people's lives, what level of commitment should I make to saving my creation? What are the links that I'm willing to go to? What am I willing to give up to save my creation? Right there. He who did not spare even his own son, he was all in. He said, I'm going to save these people. I love them. They're my children. And I'm going to give everything I have to make that possible, even my own son. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Why was Paul willing to give up and count as loss all things? Because God gives all things. And the things that matter, not just this temporary pleasure, the temporary highs that we get from the things of this world, but real, lasting, spiritual satisfaction, true happiness, and the hope of salvation. That's why Paul was willing to give up all things, because he gained all things and so much more through his relationship with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who would live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This concept again of commitment being something that restricts us, or restrains us. No, it frees us. We no longer have to live a life for ourselves, hoping that we can somehow eke out our salvation, which we can't do. The love of Christ compels us. Jesus gave everything. He laid it all on the table. And that should compel us, drive us forward, make us want to commit to serving him. No longer living for ourselves, but for him who died. And how can we possibly count the cost and say, what? Well, it's just not worth it. When Jesus gave so much more, he doesn't ask us to give what he gave. He says, I died for you, you just live for me. That's it. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's why Jesus says, you've got to give it all up, and I'll give it back. Be willing to get rid of anything in our lives that takes us away from serving God. If we're not committing, if we've got commitment issues, maybe it's because we're not willing to give it all up. Counting the cost. Maybe a matter of trust. Maybe we don't trust God 
Maybe we don't think it's worth the cost. Maybe we're not willing to give it all up, whatever the case may be. You know, when I think about commitment and what it should mean to us, let's consider the commitment of Jesus to our cause. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. You think Jesus counted the cost? You think he sat down and considered the price that had to be paid? Is it worth it? Are these people, my creation, worth the price that I have to pay? He told Peter, I can pray to God. He'll send me legions of angels. Was it worth it? The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despising the shame. It was worth it. He looked at the cost, the price that had to be paid, and he said, I'm willing to pay it. Willing to pay the price. Did Jesus have trust that let him commit himself? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's no greater act of trust, greater act of faith in the Bible than this statement right here. Jesus didn't say, hope this works. Got my fingers crossed. Sure hope God comes through. No, he said, see you in three days. He knew. He trusted God. He didn't go into the grave thinking this may or may not work. He knew this is going to work. God's going to raise me from the dead. See you in three days. And having said this, he breathed his last. With his last breath, everything he had, he was all in. From the time that he was born to the time he died, he was committed to the cause of my salvation, to your salvation. Whatever level of commitment we think we have, if we're speaking in those terms of levels of commitment, I submit to you that we're not committed. We can do all that we can, leave nothing out, put everything on the table, and be truly committed in our service to God. Not simply involved, not simply contributing, but truly committed in our service to Christ. If you're subject to the gospel call or need the prayers of the church, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.